We just finished in this sermon series studying Exodus, uh, excuse me, studying Israel's Exodus out of Egypt. Uh, We literally finished them coming out on the other side of the Red Sea. Last sermon was them going through the Red Sea and then the, the people of Egypt, the enemies of Israel being drowned in the same sea. And where we pick up our story today is literally day one of freedom. It is day one of their new journey. No more wondering if they're free from Israel, excuse me, from Egypt. No more wondering if Pharaoh is going to track them down. They have watched their enemies die. The sea has closed up. And they are literally on the other side of the sea. They are free. And what we read is that immediately, as soon as they enter into freedom, they are tested in the wilderness. This lesson is so incredibly important to understand the truth about the Christian journey. As I was studying for this particular message, I thought to myself, this sermon should be part of like a Christianity 101 course. This is something that we should all learn immediately upon salvation. The answer, the, the, the point is real simple, that our freedom from our sins, that when God liberates us and makes us new, it does not mean a future without difficulty. The exact opposite is true. We face much difficulty. In fact, the Word of God declares in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's what Israel discovered on day one of freedom. There are certain things that we learn or discover in the wilderness, and this morning I want to look at five of these things that are discovered or revealed to us in the wilderness. Number one, we must pass through the wilderness to enter the promised land. We must pass through the wilderness to enter the promised land. Remember that God had promised these people a good future. They were aware of a mountain that they would meet with God and worship God on. Yet God did not tell them about all the difficulties they would face along the journey. The same thing is true for the Christian life. Our ultimate hope is in heaven and we are to be focused on that. And that is where we're headed. And that is what motivates us more than anything. But here is the reality. There is a wilderness to journey between when we get saved and when we reach the ultimate promised land. We must go through the wilderness. And there are two major lessons that God teaches us in the wilderness. I would say two primary purposes God takes us through the wilderness. One is to teach us something about ourselves. 
The other is to teach us something about Him. It's in the wilderness that we learn first about us. The wilderness reveals the evil in our own hearts. The incurable corruption of the flesh. And this humbles us. We learn, <clears throat> we learn that once we begin the Christian journey, there's still a tendency in that old heart to think the old way, to live by the old way, to question God's goodness. We learn that we're impatient. We learn that we look to the wrong places to satisfy the soul. And it reveals something to us. It reveals that even after I have been saved, and even after God has transformed my heart, there is a great and desperate need for me to depend upon God in every area of my life. That I cannot make it through this journey in my own strength. I cannot make it through this journey all by myself. I must learn how to walk not according to my own understanding. Secondly, God teaches us about himself. We learn that when God delivers us, and this is the theme of the morning, brothers and sisters, this is the point of the wilderness. When God delivers us, he goes with us through the wilderness. He does not keep us from the wilderness. He does not uh, find a way around it. He does not eliminate it. Rather, he goes with us through the wilderness, and there he is our provider. Number two, we note from our text that we become conscious of the wilderness after we've been redeemed. It's truly only after we've been saved. Truly born again. God's given us a new nature. We hunger for the things of God. We thirst for the things of God. We've began our journey toward the promised land. It is truly then and only then that we are awakened. That our conscience becomes aware of the wilderness. The wilderness that is this world. The natural man looks at the world and thinks that there's a lot there that is attractive and alluring. But the spiritual man looks at the world and realizes it's nothing but vanity and vexation of spirit. The natural eye looks and sees a lot that is pleasant and alluring, pleasing. But the eye of faith sees nothing but death written across the whole scene. I remember when I first got saved <clears throat> and I was awakened to the truth that God existed. I mean, like I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew I'd met God. I couldn't understand how it was possible that for 20 years of my life, I didn't know that. It was weird. It felt like I was walking around blind but that I didn't know I was blind. That's even worse, to be blind and not know you're blind. But that wasn't the only revelation that came to my soul when I got saved. I also had a revelation of the wilderness that is this world. 
And all of a sudden, the world, which once was alluring to me, which once seemed pleasurable to me, it was gray, it was empty, it was barren. And I remember truly being confused how I could have ever found enjoyment in the things I found enjoyment in. I couldn't relate to it anymore. It didn't make sense to me. I'm like, how did I think that was fun? How do they think that's fun? I don't understand how my brain and my heart used to find pleasure in those activities. And I was awakened, I was conscious now of the wilderness that is this world. And that consciousness comes only after we've truly been redeemed. And so the question then is, so how do we live in the wilderness? So what do I do now that I realize that the wilderness that is ahead of me is going to be difficult? How do I live in the wilderness? How do we live in this wilderness that is the world? Well, first of all, we do it as a traveler. We're traveling through it, folks. Only a madman would build his home in the wilderness. And that's the lesson for you and I, folks. The true sons and daughters of God. This is not our home. Do not get attached to it. Do not, do not get sucked into this world. Do not, you, you've got to realize that your time here, it's like a breath. It's like a vapor. We are travelers, first and foremost. And how do we get through it? The answer is with God. That's how we get through it. He is with us, and He is for us. The third thing that we learn when we come to see the wilderness is that the wilderness is empty of provision to meet our needs, our true needs. Exodus 15.22 says, They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. This is the very first lesson the wilderness is designed to teach us. That there is nothing there in the wilderness, nothing from the wilderness, that can minister to the new life that we have in Christ. Absolutely nothing. The pleasures of sin, the attractions of the world, they no longer satisfy. The things which formerly charmed us are now repulsive to us. Many of the relationships that we once used to find so pleasing become annoying. The things which delight the ungodly only cause true Christians to groan. And so the Christian who walks in true communion with God finds absolutely nothing in the wilderness, nothing in this world that can refresh the thirsty soul. This is the lesson, the first lesson that God teaches us in the wilderness. So what then is our resource? If there's no water there, if there's nothing to quench our thirst, then what does? The answer is obviously God. He is meant to be that resource. And it is one of the primary reasons that God in his divine wisdom leads us through the promised land. I want to camp on that statement a little bit. God 
in his divine wisdom leads us through the promised land. It's not an accident. It's by design. Why does God, in his divine wisdom, lead us through the wilderness? So that we would learn our need of him. So that we would learn that daily, I need God today. I need God tomorrow. That so long as I am here, God wants me to to humbly depend upon him. What you're going to see this morning is that the most important lesson of the two that God teaches us, one is about us, but the most important is about Him. What I pray the Holy Spirit will help you see this morning is that the wilderness journey is meant to teach us some very important things about God. We learn about God's love for us. We learn about the fact that God never leaves us and God never forsakes us. We we come to see how to know God through the wilderness. And we're going to finish there. It's really quite incredible. God in his divine wisdom leads us there. You need to, therefore, have your mind and your heart open to enjoying the wilderness. So if God in his divine wisdom has said this is part of my walk, rather than hating the wilderness, rather than hating the the journey, rather than complaining about it all the time, I need to have my heart and my mind open to, God, what is it you're trying to reveal to me about you so that my relationship with you through this journey can grow deeper so that I can experience the joy and peace that you want me to experience? Before we will ever look to God, we will first have to come to the utter consequence, or the the utter conclusion that the wilderness is barren. And to demonstrate the barrenness of the wilderness, it doesn't just stop that they couldn't find water for three days. Look even further at just how hopeless the situation was. In 1523, it says that when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Consider what kind of a test this was. Three days of a journey in the hot and sandy wilderness without any water. Then they finally find some, and they can't drink it. Welcome to the wilderness. How often this is the case with the young believer... And some of us old believers too. We grasp at things that we think will satisfy. We search through this world. Thinking if we'll just go a little further. Look a little deeper. We'll eventually find something that will meet our truest needs. Only to find out that not only does it not satisfy. But it leaves us in bitter disappointment. We think that if we search long enough. It will find something in the wilderness that will satisfy the longings of our soul. And we are left with sorrow and emptiness. Here, Israel is made to feel the true barrenness of the wilderness. Not only was there no water, but when they finally found something that looked like it would satisfy, water was bitter. This leads us to a very important part of the wilderness. Number four this morning, 
a wrong perspective about the Christian journey leads to disappointment. So the murmuring of Israel, it reveals to us how unprepared they were for what they were facing. To go three days with no water, then to find some and only find out it was bitter. I mean, how differently had they expected things to be from God? And let's be fair. How natural. To assume. I mean, God delivered them out of Pharaoh's hand. God parted the Red Sea. God sent them on the other side. How natural to just assume that over on the other side it was going to be easy. Now, God never said it was going to be easy. But it's natural that they assumed that. So it is with the Christian journey. We often start out with a false perspective that because God has opened my eyes and I realize that God loves me and God has changed me and God has made me his own and I'm a child of God, therefore it's natural to assume that since that has now happened in my life, life is going to be easy. And many of us old timers can testify We started out the same way, and it was our misunderstanding of what the wilderness was that led us to fail in the wilderness. And so for for you young Christians, you that are fairly new in your faith, you need to understand that this world was never meant to be a source of peace for you. It was never meant to be a source of, of joy for you. And you can scour the world over and over and over and over, and no matter how far you go, and no matter how long you search, you will come to the same conclusion over and over and over again that this world cannot satisfy. It was never meant to satisfy. We enter the wilderness all too often without understanding of what it really is. We thought God would make the world easy for us. A thousand times, no. Here was the promise, and here is the promise. Not that God would make it easy for us, but that God would go with us through it. You don't got to walk it alone anymore. That he would be our provider. A wrong perspective about this will lead you to great disappointment. Look what was said in uh, verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Three days ago they'd been singing. Now they were murmuring. How true this is. Of many of us. And by the way, when they were singing three days ago, folks, it was real. We, we, we are not studying the song of Israel in this sermon series. But it happens as soon as they come up and they're delivered right before they begin this journey. Three days ago, they're worshiping and it's real and it's sincere. And now they're murmuring. What a reality this can be in our life. It's not always a long, slow fade of many, many, many months that somehow we went from being 
having a great attitude towards God and worshiping God, and then all of a sudden we're murmuring. Sometimes it's a matter of a day or two. Again, the wilderness teaches us something about our own hearts. It teaches us how fickle we can be. And I ask the question, why? Why could they go from worshiping and singing to murmuring in such a short time? The answer is simple. They got their eyes off of God and their eyes on the wilderness. And you get your eyes off of God and you get your eyes on the wilderness and you will start murmuring quick. You start looking to the wilderness to provide water for your soul instead of looking to God to be the only provider. And you'll find that you go from worship to murmuring real quick. Had God not proven himself already? Had he not shown himself to be the great provider already? Yet they're looking to the wilderness and finding it hopelessly unable to meet their needs. This is the lesson God wants us to learn. Which brings us to the final point this morning, which is the major point of it all, and that is that the Lord is our provider through the wilderness. The Lord is our provider through the wilderness. Look at verse 25. And he, that's Moses, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. We're going to study this right now. But I just want to say in the, in the great big picture, God answered the need. These people were murmuring and all of a sudden they've got sweet water. And they didn't get sweet water because they were murmuring. We'll talk about why did God answer in a moment. But first of all, let's just note God did. You know, one of the things we learn in the wilderness is that our God who delivered us and redeemed us, our God is gracious to us, even in the wilderness. And even in our failings, God is gracious to us. He is the great provider. When our faith fails, our God remains faithful. This is one of the lessons that we learn in the wilderness. And on one hand, It's embarrassing. The lessons we learn about ourselves are embarrassing. But on the other hand, what we learn about God is so superior and so far greater that our hearts find encouragement that our God is faithful to us. He is with us and he is for us through the wilderness. Psalm 103 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Thank God for that. So God was gracious here, and he turns the waters sweet, but on what grounds? According to our text, God was responding to the interceding prayers of a mediator named Moses. Moses was praying for these people. Moses, if you will, was standing in the gap between God and And his murmuring people. And there was Moses in the middle saying, God, be gracious and merciful. And these murmuring people have a real need. And God answers the prayer of Moses as a mediator on behalf of the people. 
It is a picture of how we would remain in right standing with God, with Jesus as our mediator. Look what the New Testament says in Hebrews 7 about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now look at this statement. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thank God that we've got the great assurance that the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave and who always lives before God is making intercession for us. That should give us a great sense of assurance and peace in our wilderness trials and in our wilderness failings to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is making intercession for us. Now, what was God's answer? He showed Moses a log or a tree. The word could be used simultaneously. It's important to note, though, that it's not a limb. There's a different word for like a limb, a small limb, or a twitch. Obviously, it wasn't a tree that was, had roots deep into the earth, or Moses wouldn't have been able to pick it up and throw it into the water. And so a log is probably the best interpretation here. Enough about that. What we, sent, what we need to note is this. God's answer to their problem was a large, rugged piece of wood. That was God's answer to their problem. And we want to talk about this tree this morning. We want to see how it is God's answer to our problem. The first thing I want to note before getting to the tree and how the log is the answer to the problem, I want to note that the answer was there before they even arrived. Let that sink in for a moment. Here are the people murmuring against God and the answer to their problem was there before they ever even showed up on the scene. Now there's a lesson for us about our God. Most of the problems that we allow to vex us and cause us to lose peace, cause us to lose sleep, the reality is God's already got an answer to it. We just don't see it. Often the answer is there the whole time and God just hasn't revealed it to us that here's the answer. My mind goes to the passage of Scripture that tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was ever a sin problem, God had an answer to the sin problem. And before, if, if God had the greatest answer to the greatest problem that the earth would ever know, trust me, He's got an answer to whatever your small problem is. So the answer was there all along before they had ever arrived. The problem was they didn't see it. God had to... Show it to Moses. The Bible literally says God showed Moses the log. It's an interesting thing. Like God showed him the log. It was there. God had to show it to him. We see this concept of God showing us that he's already provided an answer. Throughout many places in scripture. Consider of Hagar. We read 
Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Hagar was there thinking she's basically going to die. They don't got any water, but turns out there was actually a well within seeing distance. She was right where the answer was, thinking she was in an unanswerable problem. Of Elijah's servant, we read, Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We see God opening the eyes of a young man to the reality that God had already provided an answer to their problem. In Proverbs 20.12, the Bible declares, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So let's get to the, 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 the point this morning. What did God show Moses? The tree, which is an unmistakable foreshadow of Christ. There are two pretty significant foreshadows of a tree that represent Jesus. First, Christ is the tree which we find rest and sweet fruit to refresh the soul from. Look at this really interesting passage in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So it is a tree separated from the rest in the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now here is the life lesson about the wilderness, folks. Jesus Christ alone is the tree that we can rest and find shade from the beating sun of this world. And fruit to satisfy the soul. It is only in Him. You will find it nowhere else. It is a waste of your time and a waste of, of, of your energy and everything else. To try to find rest. And the refreshing of your soul anywhere. Except under the shade of Jesus Christ. Second. The tree and this, this especially the reality that this was a log that once was part of a tree. It points to the cross of Christ. Peter uses the word tree to reference the cross. In 1 Peter 2.24 he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Remember, the log is what made the water sweet. Yes? Now here's the lesson. And it's going to take some help from God to help me teach you this morning. And some help from the Lord to help you understand it. Here's the lesson. The cross is what makes the bitterness of this world sweet to us. And I'm going to explain that. I, want to, I actually want to provide the explanation for that. 
the cross, is what makes the bitterness of this world sweet to us. How so? One more passage, Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want you to focus on that term, I may know him. Not that I may know about him, but that I may know him. And how do we know him? Through sharing in, in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I want to explain this idea of fellowship and knowing somebody. We have deeper fellowship with individuals that we can relate to. Uh, A.J. Frischermeyer was here at the first service, and I was able to use A.J. as an example because both A.J. and I came from a past life of drug abuse and addiction. Additionally, we grew up in the same town, and we even know a lot of the same people because he and I have had a very similar experience. The reality is that to a degree, I know A.J. in a way that some of you may not, and he knows me in a way that some of you may not. And so we come to know people better when we can truly relate to their experiences. Now, here's what we're being told. We're being told that we come to know Jesus as we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. So that cross that Jesus bore, there are so many things that are part of that cross. I don't have the time to drag them out. But you know, it wasn't just the death. Jesus experienced the abandonment of friends. Jesus experienced the pain of having to go through the most difficult moments of his life alone. Jesus experienced public humiliation. Not just the pain of it. Not just the death of it. It was humiliating. Jesus experienced being falsely accused. Jesus experienced every form of hatred that this world has to offer. When I understand that, here's what I know. When I experience the bitterness of this world, it allows me to a degree to understand what my Lord and my Savior went through. It literally allows me to know Him in a deeper degree of fellowship when I have to go through suffering in the wilderness. Now, how could that not possibly sweeten the suffering of the wilderness when I realize it literally helps me identify with Jesus? The cross that Jesus had to bear was by far the greatest cross that anyone has ever borne or ever will. But 
he told his followers that they too would carry a cross, yes? Here's what he said, Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that blessed piece of wood, it identifies us with Christ. That cross identifies us with Christ. And when I take up his cross, and I take up my cross, and I chuck them into the bitter waters of this world, it makes them sweet to me. It changes everything. It changes how I see them. It changes how I process the pain of walking through the wilderness. I realize, number one, God is with me. God is for me. God is my provider. And I am feeling and learning to experience what it was that my Savior went through, the very process that I'm going through, it's making me more like Him. And when I realize that, all of a sudden, it's just not so bitter anymore. I almost welcome it. Doesn't make it fun, but can you see how it sweetens the bitterness of it all? Only in the cross of Christ will we ever find the peace that surpasses understanding. Only when I realize that God never intended to take away all the pain and suffering, God led me to the wilderness and has told me to carry my cross through it, only then will I ever find true joy in my journey. The very difficulties of the crosses we carry, they literally identify us with Christ. No matter what cross you have to carry today or tomorrow, whether it's the abandonment of people that love you, whether it's going through the hardest moments of your life alone, whether it's being falsely accused, whether it is some other cross, you need to understand that that gives you something specific that you can relate to Jesus with and that you can share with Him in the fellowship of His sufferings that you can literally enter into that experience and identify with Him. That you can understand that He went through all of that for you. And I will say this. One of the hardest things to, for us to really uh, come to terms with. Often when we experience these pains and these sufferings, we're frustrated and we're hurt. On one hand, it does help us to enter into our fellowship with Jesus. On the other hand, when we look ourselves in the mirror, we find that we are the ones so often guilty of doing the very same thing to Him. And if God could love us and if God could be gracious to us, how much more do we need to be to others? God has literally used in my life people that have vexed me, people that have bothered me, people that I've been at odds with. God has used those times and moments of my life to let me get to a place where I was frustrated and I was angry and I felt betrayed. And then God has said, how do you think I feel when you do it to me, son? And I was like, oh, that's what this was about. See, God used the wilderness to lead me somewhere to teach me about me and ultimately to remind me 
that even in, in, in all of my sufferings, as small as they are, they will never equal that which my Savior went through me. But now I understand His heart a little bit better. Now I know Him a little bit better. Now I, now I have fellowship with Him in a deeper way. I want to close with something uh, about joy this morning. But there are, I want to, if you'll let me, I'm going to hit a comma. And I'm going to do two quick side notes. And I'm going to come back to our narrative. I want to do these because there's just no way to come back to them. Side note number one. In verses 25 and 26, God gives Israel some statutes and commandments. It's interesting that God never gave Israel commandments. There's no word of them at all in Egypt. No word of them at all at the Passover. No word of them at all at the Red Sea. But now that they have been delivered, now that they are free to follow Him, God pushes rules upon them. And here's the lesson. We are bought with a price. And when God redeems us, He has the right to expect something of us. That there is a way that we ought to live. And God goes on to say, if you keep these rules, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't, you're going to suffer the consequences that come. Now, they're already on the other side of the Red Sea, yes? They've already been set free, yes? So this isn't so much about salvation. This is about the reality that in your Christian journey, if you do not follow the commands of God in your life, there will be bitter consequences. This is an important lesson we got to learn. And if you want to be blessed by God, you've got to do what God tells you to do. You've got to follow His Word. God says, now that you're free, and now that you understand how this works, and that the wilderness is not an easy thing, but that I can make the water sweet, now that you understand all of that, understand I've got some commandments that you need to live by. The same principle is true for the Christian today. Side note number two. It's incredibly interesting to this preacher that here, of all places in the Bible, is when God chooses to make himself known as the healer. This is it. This is the place, folks. Now, he'll forever be known as the healer after this. We'll call him Jehovah Rophi forevermore. We're going to see him heal, 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 heal. Jesus comes as the great healer. But this is the place God introduces himself that way. When he turns the water from being bitter to sweet. I'm telling you this little side note. We're going to get back to our narrative in a moment. The reason I want to deal with this is because when God reveals himself as the healer, he chose to use means. Earthly means to heal the water. A log that he would have a human being 
pick up and place somewhere. Yes, whatever happened was most likely miraculous. Difficult for me to believe that somehow there was something natural in the log that once it fell into the water, naturally made it sweet. I think it was supernatural. But the point that I'm making is that there were still means that were involved. God could have just stirred it. God could have had Moses just stand back and stirred it, right, to where it was like God from heaven did this thing. Now, I believe, I don't just believe, I know that I know that I know that I know the supernatural healing is real and that it still happens today. I know that. The problem is, is that in the Christian world, there tend to be two camps that are extreme and they're both wrong. One camp is basically that only God uses natural means. He doesn't really heal supernaturally anymore. He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't really do that thing anymore. And then you got your other camp over here, you know, that's like God only heals supernaturally. You shouldn't take medicine. You shouldn't do, take use means. Don't use doctors. And I think biblically both of those are just really poor and, and really wrong biblical views. Because God did both. And it must be noted that when God reveals himself as a healer, he does so using natural means. And I want to show you just quickly a couple other places in the Bible where God's doing something, but he employs earthly means to do it. Elijah used a form of salt in healing the waters of Jericho in 2 Kings chapter 2. When Hezekiah was sick to the point of death, God instructed Hezekiah to use some form of figs like baked into a medicine. Look at the text. Uh, This is from 2 Kings 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Paul told Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And even on the new earth, God will use means for healing the bodies of the nations which have lived through the millennium without dying and being raised in glorified bodies. Look what Revelation 22 verse 2 says. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now the point in the word of God is very clear that God uses means in the process of bringing healing. Though God can heal supernaturally, though God does heal supernaturally, God does not always heal supernaturally. He often employs earthly means to do so And I just think it's really important that that is noted here when God reveals himself as the healer. So those are my two side points. Let's get back to our narrative and finish up the sermon this morning. Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are led out of slavery and liberated from the bondage of Egypt. Only immediately to discover the wilderness. Three days, no water. Finally, on the third day, they find some water, and it's bitter. God teaches them through this the symbolicness of the cross 
that when the cross is launched into that which is bitter, it will become sweet. And then we read this. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Then they came to Elam. Why didn't God just lead them there in the first place? Don't, don't we wish that sometimes. When we finally get to the place of Elam where there's water and there's trees, it's like, whoa, why didn't we just go there? Well, obviously, the answer is there were lessons to be learned along the way. There was revelation that God wanted us to learn of ourselves and of Him. But I want to leave you this morning with this incredibly encouraging truth about the wilderness. Even in the wilderness, there is a place with 12 springs of water and 70 trees for shade. But you've got to note the order. First, the bitter waters of Mara must be sweetened by the tree. Then the commandments of God must be followed. Then the promises of God's blessings follow His command. And then we know what it is in a dry and barren land to say for me, I've got 12 springs to drink from and 70 trees to sit under. This is the truth about Christian fellowship, guys. It is possible to have joy that is almost impossible to express. It's possible to have peace that the Word of God says surpasses natural understanding. It is possible. The reason the peace surpasses natural understanding isn't because everything is good. Otherwise, we would understand it. It surpasses natural understanding because to everyone else, they would look at what we're going through and say, how in the world can you have peace in your heart? Well, when you take the cross of Christ, you take my cross that I'm called to bear, and you realize that all the suffering that I go through only allows me to even identify more with my Savior and to know Him at a deeper level. When you realize that I am not alone, that the God of heaven and earth, He is with me. He's not just with me, He is for me. When you realize that the one who has all power and all provision is my provider. When you realize that I am where I am because God himself has led me here. It is no accident. This trial that I'm facing is not some accident that I stumbled upon. My life, my feet are directed by God himself. I am where God wants me to be. I am who God wants me to be. And I am his and he is mine. When you realize all of that... None of this stuff in this world, this dry, barren world, can strip me of my joy. God is with us. And he is for us through it all.